All right, Steve Palmer here. The long-awaited return of Lawyer Talk, off the record, on the air is back. So everybody's been listening, has been thinking, you know, you guys have been doing this Common Sense Ohio show and launching it off the Lawyer Talk platform, yada, yada, yada. I hear you. I actually got a call over the weekend, uh, actually two weekends ago, from a listener out in um, Wisconsin, of all places, and uh, the listener was asking me, wait a minute, what are you doing with your show? Aren't you going to keep doing it? I love it. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, of course I'm going to keep doing it. Um, but I didn't realize that maybe people are missing it more than I thought, and it's like out of sight, out of mind. So here we are. I'm back. Uh, a pure, unadulterated lawyer talk episode. And it is. it couldn't be more legal related because I'm coming back with a vengeance here, uh, and I have a guest. Uh, it's a gentleman who is running for office, believe it or not, the Court of Appeals here in the Franklin County Court of Appeals, and that's the 10th District. We'll talk a little bit about what all that crap means here in a second because it's it, it's it get it sounds confusing, but when you break it down, it's not so confusing uh, how the court of appeals work. But uh, his name is Keith McGrath, and without further uh, ado, with the election coming right around the corner on Tuesday, we're going to talk to Keith about uh, about everything. I guess Keith, how you doing this morning? I'm doing well, thanks, Steve. Uh, Keith came in this morning. It's eight o'clock here, and we're we're recording this, so uh, I gave him the quick rundown how everything works, and uh, he's ready to rock and roll. Uh, so, I mean, look, Keith, you're you're obviously an attorney. Yes. And you've been on the, how long have you been practicing law? Uh, I graduated from the Ohio State uh, University. Um, he said the. The. The uh, Ohio State University. Uh, um, college, um, Moritz College of Law, I guess is the official name for that. I graduated in 1992, so I've been practicing for 30 years. Yeah, you got four years on me. I graduated law school in, ni- or three years. I graduated in 95. But, uh, so I've known Keith as a prosecuting attorney and you would think, well, you've been doing Palmer, you've been doing defense work for your entire career. How could you possibly be hanging out at the round table here with a prosecutor? Well, it doesn't work that some prosecutors I hate, some I love, some in between hardly ever for any, you know, there's no rule across the board. I actually hates a strong word. I don't hate anybody, but <laughs> some, some I would have, uh, I, I don't get along with as well as others. Maybe that's the way to say it, but Keith, we've always gotten along and, um, we have, you know, yeah. people would sort of wonder how does that happen? So what's your relationship with the defense bar? I mean, start there well as a as a prosecuting attorney um my job in the court is obviously opposite yours so we're going to have arguments we're going to have discussions um but there's a little tradition that the prosecutor's office has uh no matter how aggressive things get in the courtroom when the trial is over you go out and do a shot and a beer with the defense attorney yeah because it's in the courtroom outside the courtroom it's nothing personal yeah and it's uh i've even had clients sort of get a little consternation at times to me. They're like, they, they look at me sort of funny, like I'm talking to you. I don't know if we've ever tried a big case together. I don't think so. But uh, I'll, I'll be in a trial and uh, my client's like a little bit upset that I'm friendly with the prosecutor. And I'm just like, look, man, this is business for us. It's our job. And, you know, it's been heated at times. I mean, I, I've screamed at prosecutors and yelled and even almost come to blows at times. But, uh, you know, afterwards, like you said, shot in a beer and everybody's fine. Right. Right. Um, so when did you start? Did you start right away at the prosecutor's office? I did. I started working in the prosecutor's office actually in 1990 during law school. I worked for the Knight Prosecutors Program where we did mediations and trying to help resolve uh, neighborhood disputes, things that didn't have to go to court, things that we could resolve without filing criminal charges. So that's what our goal was. The Knight Prosecutors Program. So you're talking to the guy whose dad was part of the inception of the Knight Prosecutors Pro- Program, old Professor John Palmer. I didn't. I don't even know what he did to establish it, but I know he was part of that way, way, way back in the probably the '80s, I guess. So yeah, in the 1990s, we were doing that, and and I worked uh, at the time. The prosecutor's office would stay open to midnight, so we would have citizens come down and file the complaint, and we would talk to them, set up mediation hearings, and try to resolve those disputes. It's not going on anymore, is it? Not that late. It is still going on, but oh, not it? that late. 
Gotcha. So you were telling me some stuff before we hit the red button to start recording that I didn't know at all about your background. So uh, do tell, man. Well, um, I'm originally from New York. You can so, sort of still hear it. A little bit. When I say Long Island, Long it, Island. it comes out. Yeah. Um, uh, my dad is actually a high school dropout. Uh, he uh, dropped out of high school in the six, when he was 16. Um, and then his mom took him down to the recruiter station when he was 17 and signed him up. And off to Paris Island in the Marines, he went. Um, when he finished that, uh, he got a job with a company called Grumman. 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 Okay. Uh, Grumman Aerospace. Yeah, I've heard uh, of it. Uh, they, uh, and he, he started working on the LEM program. Now, the LEM is the actual vehicle that landed on the moon. The lunar something module? The lunar module, yes. Yeah. Uh, so we were down in Florida for a while. Um, uh, then we moved back to New York. Then he got a job. He was working on the F-14 program. Everybody knows the F-14 because of Top Gun. Yeah, uh, right. Right. So we were, uh, my dad's actually uh, a company sent him overseas to live in Iran. So I got to spend fourth and fifth grade living in Iran. Yeah. So when your dad gets sent overseas to go to Iran, it wasn't like you you stayed in Florida. No. No, you, you went to Iran. We went to Iran. Give me the years. Uh, 1975 through 1977. And that was like the hard time. I mean, look, I, I don't. I'm not a total history buff, but I know a little bit of history, and that ain't good history back in those days. Well, in, in those days, it wasn't bad. The, uh, if you remember, the hostages were taken. There was a regime change uh, with the uh, Shah and the Khomeini coming in. Uh, that was the end of 1978-79. Okay, so that was right after you left. Right after we left. My dad knew some of the guys who were taken hostage. Wow. So, But on our way over there, uh, we had to fly through um, a little place called Beirut, Lebanon. And it's not something we knew about back then. Uh, There's just a civil war starting out in 1975. Um, when we landed, you know, we're talking 1975. So you got off the airplane on the tarmac. Right. You're walking down steps and outside. Right. Like kids these days have no idea what that was like. No idea. Right. They think you're like in. But we did that. And all of a sudden we were surrounded by soldiers and we were led to the airport. They refueled the plane. They let us back on uh, and we took off. Um, and I loved, you know, I was eight years old at the time just about to turn nine. I love watching the wing. And all of a sudden, all the smoke started coming out the wing. And I'm trying to put things together and, and thinking, what's going on? Are we sky riding? Uh, what's happening? <laughs> sky riding, right. I, I didn't know. There's a big passenger plane. And uh, I, I finally called my mom and said, listen, I, I can't figure out what's going on. And, and she's like, honey, honey, you know, these planes don't sky ride. And she looks over and she screams my dad's name. And um, back in these days, not very many people spoke English. The pilots, it wasn't the international language. It was a French airline. So this um, stewardess comes running up. She looks out the plane, <clears throat> out the window at the, at the wing. and she Fume, just, fume, fume. Yeah, she bolts to, the, to the, the cockpit, and we start making a turn, and we have to do an emergency landing. Wow. So the nearest airport was Beirut, Lebanon. <laughs> so you go back. We go back. And they have the, uh, the airport covered in foam. They had all the emergency vehicles lined up. Uh, we land. Um, uh, I guess the short story is we had to spend three days there. They put us in hotels every day. Um, they shipped us out of the, the city on buses to go out to the countryside. I heard the explosions. I heard the fire, uh, the gunfire. So for a little kid, I think it was exciting. My parents were scared to death. Uh, yeah, you're in a war zone. And we're in a war zone. So three days in uh, Beirut, and they finally, no other airplanes were coming in. The airport was shut down. Uh, they finally fixed the plane that we were on. You had to get back on the and same plane. we pla had to get back on the same plane. That's a little different. Yeah. <laughs> now, everybody is watching the wing like I was, but we, we left the uh, Beirut. That was sort of our introduction to the Middle East. Yeah. And what a good one, though, because that, you probably have a bet. You're probably more in tune with Middle East history than most people are because of that experience. And Lebanese food. Love it. 
Really? Okay. Yes. I for some reason. Where do you get it around Columbus? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got gotcha. you. Well, look. I mean, it, you t- you said something in the midst of that whole mess that that, that struck me as uh, interesting, if not relevant. Your dad dropped out of high school. Yeah. Then he was in the military, and then he became a successful individual, a successful man with a family. Uh, you know, a good living, it sounds like, and doing interesting things and a completely content existence. And he didn't go to college. How's that happen? I, you work. You work you, hard. Right. And yeah. it's, it's like somehow in the mess, we all, we got lost. This ideal right. got lost. Like everybody ought to go get an education. And, right. And, you know, it, it's, it just seems like education is, uh, I don't want to say college is overrated, but it's not. I don't think everybody should have a college education. I kind of agree with you because I, I think the education is getting through high school. And then after that, finding something that you enjoy. Yeah. And that could be a skilled uh, job. It could be college. It doesn't have to be a four-year college. Of course, right. And so my, my dad, uh, uh, we lived a very middle-class life in New York. Um, he worked for that job for over 30 years. By the time he was leaving that job, he told me that they were uh, advertising for it, and you had to have not only a college degree, but a college degree in engineering, and they would, uh, needed a master's and would prefer a Ph.D., and that's my dad who was in a high school dropout just sitting there working hard for over 30 years. And doing the same job. Same job, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it, it's my my son, you have kids. I do, I have two kids, yes. Yeah, my son is, is one, my oldest is in college now, and my youngest is like, Dad, I don't want to go to college. I'm, and he's going to visit the trade school next week. And, you know, I couldn't be a prouder dad because, mm-hmm. as I've told both my boys, all I want you to do is have a plan. It doesn't even have to be the right plan. You, you can change your plan later if you right. say that was a mistake, but at least you had a plan. You're doing something for a reason. Right. And, and my daughter's doing that. Uh, she just graduated high school. This is her first uh, semester in college. Uh, she decided she wanted to become a paramedic EMT. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So she's uh, at Columbus State here in, in town, and she's getting her, she's starting to get her certificate for that that process. And yeah. I could, I, like you said, I couldn't be more proud. Yeah, it's just a, it, it shows somebody who has a plan and, and what I mean, I think, and this may segue to what we're talking about, I don't know. What I mean, I think, is that if if you have a plan, then you've given it some thought. And if you've given it some thought beyond just showing up your freshman year in college to get drunk and chase girls or guys or whatever it is your pleasure is, then, it, you know, that's sort of how I did it. And I'm, I'm saying, do it. Don't do what I did. Do what I'm saying. Right. right? You know, because right. I didn't know what I, I didn't have a good plan. I was like, I'll go to college and figure it out. And uh, I did. And I landed in law school almost by mistake because in 1992 when I graduated when you finished law school I was finishing college guys were pinning up their rejection letters for jobs on the door I mean there there just there wasn't a whole lot to be had particularly with a liberal arts history degree right, right. so their law school right and then after law school my first job was working for a guy in town here named Bill Meeks and uh, at that they weren't quite partners but they're colleagues, uh, Sam Shemansky, and was doing criminal defense. I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I'm going to do this. And looking back, what a dumb choice that was. But <laughs> it, it, uh, well, coming out of high school, I actually went into the Coast Guard. Uh, the oh, only, did you? The only way I was going to get through school or, or be able to go to college was through the military. So I applied to uh, a number of colleges with ROTC. I applied to the West Point. I applied to the Coast Guard Academy. I got into the Coast Guard Academy. Really? So yeah. how much time did you spend in the Coast Guard? Just under three years. That was after school or after college? As, uh, after high school. After high school. And it's like West Point where you're taking classes. So you're not, your three years isn't just service, it's service plus. Service plus. I didn't graduate from the Coast Guard Academy. I left um, and finished up at Marshall University in West Virginia. Like we are Marshall. Yeah. We are Marshall. And uh, then came here for, for law school. Wow, what an interesting story. So then you started at the Knight Prosecutors Program. And, you know, I said it would segue, and it sort of does, because that's about the time that 
I was finishing or, or, or into law school and I graduated in 95 and you were in the municipal court, the Franklin County Municipal Court Prosecutor's Office. I was working for Ron O'Brien. Uh, I was a prosecutor there. Um, do you remember that we used to have traffic court at night? Yeah. So yeah. I, I did that when I was in law school. Uh, we would uh, try to help people so they didn't have to take off time from work. They would come at night and deal with their traffic cases. Uh, and then after graduation, Ron hired me and I started working in a courtroom. Now, just to put some perspective on this courtroom, like when you say working in a courtroom, I mean, there were what, uh, 15 courtrooms? Uh, at that time, I think there were 15. So 15 courtrooms, 15 different municipal court judges. And folks, I'm telling you, like I, to this day, it's not like it used to be, but I would tell clients, they, clients would be like, well, how am I going to find you? I'm like, you're not, I'm going to find you. Like if you, you know, you just show up, get on this floor and I will come out there and scream as loud as I can. Uh, Smith, Smith, yeah. John Smith, you know, and, and then some guy like, ah. every courtroom had probably 40 to 50 cases a day. And that was maybe an average. Some had less my worst day. And of course you always remember your worst days. I was in front of judge Liston. I had 111 cases, 110 cases. I finished before noon and the 111th case, Sean Boyle and I started an OVI trial. And it's like, Anybody who thinks that's easy, you, I, I cannot explain how difficult that is mentally. I mean, it is a grueling mess. So you're keeping track, like a hundred and some cases, and maybe half have lawyers. So you're keeping track of the lawyers. You're keeping track of the individuals representing themselves on some speeding ticket who wants a trial. So you're like, all right, I got to get my witnesses there while you're talking to somebody else. And I would show up in a courtroom in those days, and maybe you would be there as the prosecutor in that courtroom, and all you see is this sea of blue files mm -hmm. and gray files. Uh, sort of accordioned out on the or, or stacked in line across the the prosecutor's table, just totally full. And then the big days, you had to dig through that you couldn't show the right. names; they were right. they had to stack on top of each other. It was it was crazy. But I'll tell a story. Okay. I told you I was going to tell a story. I had, I had been practicing law on my own. I finished in '95. I, I hung out my shingle, and I was Steve Palmer, attorney at law. Day one, no money. Day two, no money. Day three, no money. Day four, like holy crap, what am I going to do? Um, I was still friends with a guy named Eric Yavich. Um, and Eric was a, um, Eric was a member of something called TVC, which is really the trucker's voice in court. And it was like a prepaid legal. So truck drivers would, uh, prepay and we'd get 150 bucks or something to do a, a traffic ticket. And then we had something called 25% cases where if it weren't a speeding ticket or a traffic violation, like maybe a no ops or driving under suspension or something, uh, then you could get a little bit more money at a discounted rate. And I had one of those and it was a driving under suspension or no ops. I can't quite remember what it was. And that was back in the day that the night before, if I had a case, I would actually look at the file. And I, I do that on big cases now, but on like a, if, so, if I, look, folks, if you have a driving under suspension charge, I've done it. Right. right. I, I know, you know, it, it may take a couple seconds to, uh, to figure out exactly which one you have, but uh, I, I got it. But um, I think, and I can't remember the complete story, so I'll butcher it, but I think it was, I had done some work up on the case. I didn't see any real defense to it. Um, based on what I saw. I mean, the guy was under suspension. He was driving there. It was what it was. And, and I guess to, to not, I guess I should give myself a little bit of credit because it is sort of confusing driving under suspension and mm -hmm. how to prove them is, is somewhat tricky. So you have to have certified documents. You have to have different stuff. Correct. Correct. I showed up, I checked in with you and, and I was ready to plead this guy guilty. And you said, look, I got to dismiss this case. Um, you, uh, there's a problem with it. And uh, I got it all taken care of. And that was that. And, you know. That's not something I remember. It's, I've, no, it's because it was like one of 150 that day <clears throat> right. or 110 that day. But it stuck with me now for almost, uh, well, probably 25 years. 
or so okay. because it, it reflected you doing your – so it's hard to say this guy's awesome. He did his job. He did justice. He, he, he told the defense attorney that he had a problem with his case and dismissed it, but that doesn't happen very often. Well, the job is what the job is. I, I'm not there to get a conviction. I, I'm there to try to do uh, whatever I can to help the victims and uh, for people who have been accused of crimes. I don't want them doing it again. So whatever uh, I can have them plead guilty to or, or uh, whatever the judge is going to punish them for, I hope I never see them again. So I'm trying to do the right thing and make sure that the that whatever mistakes happened won't happen again. And if it's a criminal offense and a guy is going to be around a long time, we got to try to recognize that and punish him. And then, so I mean, I guess give us give us sort of the the law school ethic description of a prosecutor, what their job is, and then you know I think and then I'm going to shift and say where where do prosecutors go wrong? Well, I guess the uh, the law school definition is uh, uh, you want to get justice for the people in the community. Uh, my goal always was to help the victim. So in cases that there are victims, um, and in municipal court, it was domestic violence cases. Yeah, I was very concerned about that, making sure that the uh, individual who was uh, assaulted um, gets whatever help they can for themselves, find out that they and their children are, are protected. And then, you know, this is somebody that they loved at one point, and now the person committed a bad act. And they may not be a bad person, but it, but it's a bad act. And they need to uh, somehow realize that they can't do that sort of thing. And if it's uh, treatment, uh, if it's um, uh, mental health issues, uh, if it's we need to you know talk to these people about long-term not being together, that's what we're trying to do. Uh, and I'm trying to get the, the individual to understand that what they've done is wrong and they can't do that again. Um, and that's always the goal uh, um, as a prosecutor, especially with as many cases as in municipal court. Um, you're trying to make sure that you don't see those people again. Yeah. All right. So it's not necessarily you got to throw them in jail. You got to try to get them treatment, whether it's alcohol or drug treatment, mental health treatment, uh, anger management treatment. That's kind of a goal to try to work through and resolve cases. And then in the situations where you have those repeat offenders and in municipal court, you can get like, let's say drunk driving cases, the OVIs. If this is the third time that they're in front of you, they've got a problem. Yeah. Uh, it's not just alcohol, but they need to stay away from getting behind the wheel of a car because that can lead to serious injuries to people, even death. So they've rolled the dice. They've gotten by right now, but now it's something a little more serious. Maybe that person needs to go to jail to understand that they can't, continue this type of behavior. And uh, in looking at a case, uh, I was always taught from Ron O'Brien on down that uh, you look at the elements. If you got the elements, you go forward with it. If you don't have the elements, then you don't have a case. And it's not for us to try to bluff something. It's not for us to try to uh, slide something by a defense attorney. We have to uh, obey the law. And if the elements aren't there, I guess like in your situation, what I got to do is dismiss the case. That's the appropriate thing to do. Yeah, you probably didn't have uh, proof of the suspension or certified documents or something for the day, and you just thought, I'm going to dismiss it. And, you know, it's a little nuance that I think many, many prosecutors, particularly, I feel like an old codger now, <laughs> but it's like looking at the, at the younger generation, a lot of them are missing this. It's more of a competition. Like, oh, I won. And uh, it, it, it always, there's nothing that offends me more than that, that sort of attitude out of the prosecutor's side that they won, they, you know, that we're going to beat that guy. I beat those lawyers. Again, it's not my job to get a conviction. That's, that's not the job. The job is to try to do justice. 
that's uh, it's so refreshing to hear it, folks. And you heard it here. <laughs> no, I mean it because there's uh, it, there's a lot of implicit stuff that goes along with that. Like you have to share as a prosecutor the evidence that helps the defense. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And it, it's like that <clears throat> seems so counter. You give this adversarial fight in a courtroom, but you're supposed to help the defense. If there's anything out there that that's um, prejudicial in my case, I, I've got to share it, and I, I always did. Um, I know that discovery laws have changed since we first started, and yep. now we really have open files. But what am I to hide? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm accusing you, the government's accusing you of a crime. I'm going to show you what I have this, to, to let you know that these are the elements. You've committed this offense. I'm going to ask for you to plead guilty. Well, let's, uh, let's move it along because it, how long were you in muni court? I was in muni court, uh, well, until Ronald Bryan became a county prosecutor. Uh, he was the Columbus City prosecutor, and then he ran for the county prosecutor's position. Uh, so that was 1997. I was going to say, it's still in the 90s, I think. Yeah, and he brought me along with him uh, over to uh, Common Police Court, where I started doing felony work. And Common Pleas, not as much volume. Although, again, the Franklin <laughs> County Court of Common Pleas, it's like, you know, it's not like going to... Um, say Fayette County or even Delaware County now. I mean, it's it, it's a busy place. Uh, back then it wasn't as busy. Right now it is very busy. Yeah. But yes, uh, it was it was a step down in the um, quantity of cases, but the seriousness was really ramped up. Uh, my first year on the job, I, I had a murder case. I, I did a murder trial. And for me to be jumping up from uh, misdemeanor uh, crimes and doing trials over in Muni Court to now doing F1s and F2s in Common Pleas Court, uh, the the stress level. Yeah. No, it's a whole yeah. different game. And F1s, and those aren't airplanes, folks. That's a felony, the first degree felony, the second degree, which in Ohio are the most serious felonies. Yeah. Correct. correct. And, and murder for sure. It's like, I, I used to say after a few years doing both, because I was, when I started, I was doing trials in my first trial, I think was like a 18 count, 19 count ag rob, gun spec, you know, full Monty up in Delaware County. And after I got through that, I was like, all right, this muni stuff, it's different. It's it is. not quite the same. And I, I used to say to my brethren and sistren or whatever it is, my colleagues in, uh, who are prosecutors, I'd be like, listen, particularly like the witness assistance advocates, I'd be like, listen, I'm heading over in about 10 minutes to common pleas. Why don't you come with me? Yeah. And you can see what like the serious stuff is. Like, I'm not right. saying this isn't bad, but come right. on, you know, you're treating this like it's a capital offense. It's not, you know, right. it, it, these people need help. They need and I'm sure every young prosecutor goes through that. I'm sure I did that when I was a young prosecutor. I did a lot of trials in municipal courts, um, but I figured it was also, I, I wanted to go do felonies. So that was good training ground for me. So what, what do you think makes it more stressful? Because, you know, on the face of it, it's just the outcome, I guess. But it, it, like, it, it just, I remember Shemansky, my mentor, saying, uh, it is completely different trying a felony trial. Yet it's the same rules and the same sort of actions. When, when uh, you're talking about, um, and, and we're going to look at it from two different uh, perspectives because you're the defense attorney and you're dealing, well, the penalties are ramped up. For me, it's the victims. Uh, when somebody breaks into somebody's home and now they're coming to you and saying, my kids can't sleep there anymore. They're, they're just afraid. Um, I've lost that peace. You know, you should be able to go home and relax. And now my kids can't do that. Or a family comes up and says, you know, my son was murdered um, and I've, I've lost, I'll never have grandkids. I'll never see him get married. And they're looking for you for justice. Right. And, and, and it's just the, the pressure that's put on you to want to do just that, you know, give that family some justice. It's, it's, and I think that's sort of dictated, you know, cause on the, you're right on, on my side, we have like, all right, if I lose this, no big deal, 30 to life. You right, know, right. it's like, 
uh, versus if I lose this, no big deal, 15 days in jail. Yeah, you know, it's like in the, on the municipal court right, side. But right. uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to set that aside. But I think what also happens is everything is ratcheted up a bit. Like y- the pressure on the prosecutors to get a conviction is greater. And I think that, and I'm not accusing you of this, but I think prosecutors generally, um, it gets easier to not disclose the Brady material. It gets easier to say, look, uh, the outcome of this is so important that, uh, you know, this is, and I don't even think I, I I've run into this. I'm going to tell, I'm going to talk about it in a second, but I've run into this where I don't think prosecutors even know they're doing it where it's like, no, that's not relevant. That, that Brady materials isn't relevant for the defense. So I don't have to disclose it. And, and again, you were never like that. And in your era, by the way, mm-hmm. was never like that, you know, going back to, I could mention names and I'm not going, maybe I, like the good ones, you know, <laughs> of your era, right. All okay. those guys with, right. I'll mention Goldstein, like that, that sort of group. Right. Uh, it was awesome back then because, you know, we could go fight, we could go, you know, we could go to war. I remember, uh, uh, there's a guy named Joe. I'm not going to use his last name. But you remember big Joe. I know Joe. And, uh, you know, we had a big case and it was a bind over juvie robbery, whatever. And then, you know, back in those days we'd be in a break and he'd be like, come on, let's go talk. And he'd go back and we'd be, we'd be hanging in the stairwell, uh, smoking a cigarette, smoking a cigarette. Yeah. And, uh, and he'd be, I wasn't smoking, but he was, and, uh, we'd be, uh, talking about the case or venting or something. And we'd go back in the courtroom and have a fight, but it was fun. Right. I mean, it was a blast. Right. But then the next then it then things sort of shifted a little bit, and there was this era where it, it became about getting convictions. And you're st- you were still there, um, but it wasn't you. Well, thank you. Um, I'm going to use some examples because um, I, I uh, later on in my career I, I emphasized vehicular crimes. Yep. So I did a lot of vehicular homicides and uh, felony OVIs. Did that stem from your your muni yes. experience? Because you used to prosecute a lot. Of, so here's what here's what he's saying: in municipal court, they do do drunk driving cases, and I've said this a hundred times. Drunk driving cases about the most complicated prosecution you can possibly have, and, and defense. There's constitutional issues. There's administrative issues. There's uh, scientific issues, and, and then, the legislature has made it unnecessarily complex. Try to read forty five eleven one nine. I dare you. Right. Right. So um, uh, I, I kind of emphasize that um, when I moved over with Ron, they had just started uh, with felony OVIs. So I think that's one of the reasons why it helped me get a job in the felony arena. Uh, but I, I would always go to people and, and look at the records, and I'm sure I've told you this, when you have a felony OVI, the only thing that makes it not a felony is if one of the previous convictions are bad. And there are certain rules and regulations that you have to follow. And if I saw something that I thought you should check, I would always look at the um, previous conviction and say, hey, listen, this one happened in mayor's court, and it looks like it happened like two days after the arrest. You want to make sure that they were represented by an attorney. You want to make sure that things were done right. Uh, And I'm I'm open with that because my job, again, isn't to get a conviction. It's to do the right thing. And if there is some defense out there that's open to you, hey. And you have. We've actually had that conversation. And uh, and here's why that's so – critical in particularly DUI, felony drunk driving prosecutions. You've got an experience and background that a lot of people don't have. And I think a lot of defense lawyers who might get those cases haven't done it a whole lot in Muni. So you've got this sort of ilk that doesn't, they're, they're applying normal criminal defense to drunk driving and they're missing the administrative side. I mean, they're Go, the, maybe there's more case law on drinking and driving litigation right. than right. any other area of conviction or uh, crime. And, you know, what you're talking about here is like there's a nuance that says in Ohio, if your prior conviction and you went in and pled guilty without an attorney, it may not count as a prior conviction. Correct. And you're going to see that because you know that from muni days and you're going to see that because you get the records. Correct. And then a defense lawyer could easily overlook that. 
hey, listen, if I'm going to prosecute you, if I'm going to convict you and you're going to have to go to prison now, I'm going to make sure that I want to do it right. So if, if the evidence isn't there, then there's nothing I'm going to do to change that. The evidence is not there. So and, I don't mind sharing that information. And let me tell you, uh, from because you haven't done this. Have you ever, do you ever do defense work? No. Okay. So from my perspective, I'll go around the state of Ohio, even out of state at times. It's not like that everywhere. I know. It is not even close to like that everywhere. It is like there is no quarter in certain places. Like if you screw up, they will they will kick you when you're down and throw you to the wolves, and they don't give a flying rat's ass if it's ineffective assistance of counsel. They don't care if you're going to get disbarred. They could care. And they being often judges, often prosecutors, court personnel. I tried a case out in one of the counties a couple years ago, and it was like I was walking into enemy territory. They all hated me. They were shocked. I would even, I can't believe you're even trying this case. I don't know what your defense is. It seems like you're wasting a bunch of time. Well, screw them. I broke it off in their backside because I won. But, uh, <laughs> it, it, but the point was they were unwilling and unable to see an obvious defense because they were blinded by their own sense of what justice ought to be. I'm not going to say they're bad people. I, right, I, right. I think they just get this notion that they want to win and they're on the side of right. Well, you got to understand there's a flip side to me uh, as well because if I do have the evidence, I'm not giving plea bargains. I'm not settling cases. I'm willing to go to trial. No, that's true. That's absolutely true. And I've that's been there it. with you where yep. we butted heads right. on a couple things. And we probably would have on a case that's pending now, but I got your colleague. Um, but uh, it's that's okay with me. Yeah. If I think I, the evidence is there and if something needs to be tried, we should try it. Uh, I think that in, in uh, common pleas court, um, if there's a, a, a way that we can give a plea bargain, we will. Uh, if there's a way from your point of view, like, oh, there's nothing I can do, you you argue for the best you can get. It's those iffy cases where there are issues that should be tried. Yeah, there's there's a few cases that should be tried. I've always said this. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. It's like, if somebody, if we're going to trial, and there's an exception, but if I'm going to trial anymore, it's because somebody's being unreasonable. Now, that's an overstatement, but what I mean is like, maybe the police have some vested interest that they shouldn't, or maybe they're too personally attached. Maybe the victim is overly emotional about it. Maybe the defendant is just crazy or a lunatic. Maybe the prosecutor is just way too zealous. And maybe the defense lawyer is a cause-oriented believer who says, screw you, I'm not doing nothing. Um, and You got all those and then add another 10 to that, but go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe the judge is saying, I'm not right. taking any plea negotiations. You right. guys got to go. Or I've had judges say, well, sorry, it's two weeks out. You're not allowed to resolve it now. I'm just like, this is absurd, right? right. You know, right. It's just so stupid. But uh, uh, there are exceptions. And one of the exceptions is like sex cases because mm -hmm. the legislative branch has given us very little options. Right. right. If you lose a sex case, it's 30 to life. If you plead to it, if there's a plea bargain to be had, there's almost always sex offender registration. And most of the time, my clients say they didn't do it. And so there's not a whole lot of wiggle room. Right. And then you on your side, I imagine, have some emotion and whatever. And DUIs may be that way too, or maybe a, a ag vehicular assault or homicide. Yeah, the ag vehiculars are the, are the the most difficult cases, and you know, I've done everything from aggravated murder down to speeding tickets, and, and it's the aggravated vehicular, aggravated uh, homicides, aggravated vehicular assaults that are the most emotional because these people here are under the influence in driving. They don't intend to commit a crime, yet here they are hurting somebody or killing somebody because they're under the influence, and it's mandatory prison time. What do you think? I've always been curious about that. It's, it's like this fascinating reflection of Western civilization. I'm going to get a little bit broad, but there, there's always like, you always see these stories of redemption where the victim's family comes in and says, look, we forgive you. You know, like that they, happens more often than you think. It really does. Yeah. It's like, we've prayed on this yeah. and we forgive. Yeah. Um, like how does that impact your decision-making as far as the case goes? 
Um, it, it makes it uh, difficult for me because uh, the the law says that if you do this, this happens. Uh, if I can uh, work with the family, you know, sometimes it's even brother killing brother. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, two two brothers driving home from the bar oh, one night. I didn't even thought about that. that that's, right? a, that's that's so you, you try to work with the family because nobody wins. Right. Nobody wins in any of these cases. Um, But, you know, there has to be some sort of punishment. There has to be some sort of treatment to make sure it doesn't happen again. There has to be all of that. But I I guess I'll admit I've cried with victims after pleas and and I've I've cried with the victims, families and defendants after pleas. We all get together. We all hug. Um, Again, it's a no win situation. It's a difficult situation. But in society, we can't have people drinking and driving and putting other people's lives at risk. Yeah. It's such a hard, it's, it's just such a, it's, it's such a unique area that it's, it's like, it's addiction. So it's like, on the one hand, you don't want to fault somebody who's been addicted to alcohol. On the other hand, you have to fault somebody because they were driving drunk and killed somebody. Right. And then you're thinking, well, how do I stop that? Well, sending this person to prison actually change that. Well, maybe, um, there was a case that I did. Um, uh, it's, I think it's completely over now, but it's uh, an individual who actually posted a video. I don't know if you remember this. He, he posted a video um, on YouTube saying, I killed a man. Oh, I do remember this case. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's, yeah. It's still out there today. And it starts off where it's all pixelated. And he's talking about how he went drinking that night. And he didn't care about anybody. And he got in his car and he was driving. And he got on the highway going the wrong way and just hit an innocent person and, and happened to kill him. And then the, the video becomes unpixelated and he introduces himself and he says, listen, don't do what I did. It's a great public service announcement. Um, yeah. It's something where he realized and he realized he was going to get punished and he realized he was going to go to prison. But he was putting something out there. And I was so appreciative of that. Um, it, it, you know, he still went to prison. But uh, just, you know, the effect it had on him and how it changed his life. Yeah, uh, it, it was it was interesting, and and hopefully, if you go out and see that video, I think it's still on YouTube now. Hopefully, it affects you, and maybe uh, it'll help save somebody's life. Yeah, it it really um, those kind of things. Like now, you're speaking my language, right? Because right. I have those moments with clients all the time. Is this the is this just a? I, I say it all the time. There's two ways this goes. This is either the time you look back in 15 years or 10 years or whatever it would be, and say my life changed for the better today, or it's another step on the paver path to hell. You right. know, it's like, right. is this just another incremental step down or is this the time you say, I needed this to happen and now it's going to get better no matter what the consequence, because you know, the, like it, there's a consequence, right? But, uh, right. if you can turn it around as a result of that, it's a good thing. You know, it, it, again, it's like to get to look at this broader Western idea of justice, which is premised on Judeo-Christian values. It really is like it or not. You know, there's this, there's redemption in that story mm-hmm. and the redemption of the story is through the adversity we're better, you know, and, and I think you and I live in this world of court where that, that plays out every single day. But it happens in real life too. You think about it. When do people decide to make a change? All right. I'm overweight. I'm out of shape. I'm living my life. Then I have a heart attack. Yeah. All right. So it takes something serious for me to decide, you know what? I need to get healthy. I, I need to lose some weight. Um, whatever the situation is, it doesn't have to be something as serious as a heart attack. It could be, um, my Kids getting married. Your kids I, getting I don't want married. to show up in pictures looking like this, right. you know. And so that there has to be a big event for you to try to make a change. And in criminal, it, it's unfortunately 
a real big event. It's usually <laughs> catastrophic. Yeah, there's not too many Noahs, right? It's like there's not too many people who can who can prepare and and be ahead of it. And and there's people out there, but I think right. that there's a reason that's a that story is showcased. It's like this. It's a it, it's a great way to sort of plan out your life, like prepare for the worst. Right. You know, prepare. Right. But it, most of us don't. Most of it hits us. It catches us blindside. Right. Right. All right. So. Let's let's get into you're you're running for the court of appeals. I'm going to shift gears on you just a little okay, bit here sure. too. Uh, we skipped over a, a part of my life because I haven't always been a prosecutor. Okay. Uh, um, in 1998, I got married. Uh, my wife was working for the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, and she was looking for jobs, and happened to find one in D.C. Uh, where she was going to work for the Department of Justice as a trial attorney. Oh yeah, I remember this. Okay. And so I gave up my career here as a prosecutor. I actually left the county prosecutor's office. And she and I moved out to Washington, D.C. For, for her career, to get it going, to get her started. Um, it was kind of, you know, I'm a prosecutor. I can get a prosecutor's job anywhere. anywhere. But uh, in Washington, D.C., it's U.S. Attorney's Office. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I applied there and uh, started working uh, at a law firm. I wound up looking, working at a um, securities law firm and doing securities defense. So it was very interesting, uh, front page, Wall Street Journal, business section. All right, what the hell cases. is securities defense? I have an idea, but let's just try to break it down. Back in 1998 to 2002, when I was there, there was a big issue with IPOs, initial public offerings, yeah, and how people initially get stock in initial public uh, offerings in the IPOs. Because if uh, you get the stock before it goes on the market, if you're one of the people who's able to buy it initially, and then it goes on the market, it usually... You know, you buy it for ten dollars a share; it'll go up to forty or fifty dollars a share that first day. Yeah, so you want to be part of the initial IPO, right? So there were businesses that were uh, slipping uh, some uh, um, brokers. Hey, listen, uh, I'm, I want to buy stock in AT and T, but instead of the normal two cents per share commission, why don't we make it ten cents per share? I want to get on your good side. I, I want to. Help, uh, help myself so when the initial public offering comes up, you think of me mm. and you give me that stuff. So there was that whole issue going out there. And we had a client uh, who some of these people started doing things like that. Uh, we had to represent them with the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office and the SEC. Uh, and it was uh, a situation where the company could have gone under, but they wound up paying a $100 million fine. Wow. And they were happy to do that because they were still in business. And it was just coming from criminal prosecution to money and situations like that, it was very interesting, very high-profile stuff. So, it's not, it's like uh, that's the uh, the Wolf on Wall Wolf yes. on Wall Street era. Yes, where, like the, you would get these people who want to pump and dump their stock. So we're gonna we're gonna have an initial IPO. We want it to go up to a hundred as fast as we can, and we, we're all in at a dollar. Right. These businesses don't have any tangible offices. They had a couple telephones in a room, and yet their business was booming. Yeah, yeah. It's and. But what was your take? I mean, you said the money was interesting because I've always said this, like I, criminal law, criminal defense law is the last bastion of honest, <laughs> it, not just defense, but prosecutors too. It's right. like it's the last bastion of honest, uh, hardcore advocacy because we have to keep each other. You know, it's like if I do something that is questionable, you're going to remember that. Right. And the community right. will know that. Like, right. We all know who they were on my side of the fence. We all know who they were on your side of the fence. And you steered clear. Or if you had to deal with that individual, you did it with a wall between you. I think that's um, – you try to do the same thing, I think, with these uh, businesses because they were you know, um, uh, a securities law firm. And so they dealt with all these businesses and the SEC all the time. So that everybody got to know each other like we got to know each other as prosecutors in criminal defense. 
So you have to deal with the U.S. attorneys. You have to deal with the US, uh, SEC. And it's the same sort of relationships that you have. Well, that's good. Um, I think there, because I do see relationships in the civil side that it's not like that, where these lawyers will, will gut each other like fishes if right. they can. Right, right. Well, over this, money. Yeah, over money. But you got to remember, I was I was a, a grunt in this law firm. I wasn't anybody yeah, okay, well. high up on this. I pulled more all-nighters at that law firm than I did in college. Yeah, those guys. Yeah. I mean, you. you. I mean, people work their nuts off yeah. in, the, in those areas. But I was able to work on uh, briefs in uh, federal court and federal appeals court. I actually worked on a number of uh, amicus briefs filed in the Supreme Court. Oh, so wow. Okay, I was, cool. Uh, a very, it was a very interesting process. I'm actually uh, – um, since 2000, I've been a member of the U.S. Supreme Court bar. Yeah, that's cool. I uh, I've tried twice, three times now to get in, and and they've shot down my petition all three times. But <laughs> you know, the hope springs eternal. So I was there during September 11th, okay. so when the Pentagon was hit, uh, and then I was living in Silver Spring. I don't know if you remember, there was a sniper. Oh yeah, the, the, the guy and his son wanted or uh, driving around in their van. Uh, and the, he was driving around in the car and in the trunk. He had a hole oh, in the, the trunk. trunk. That's right. Yeah. Right. Um, and the gas station I went to, somebody was shot. The Home Depot I went to, somebody was shot. So it was at the end of my um, uh, my wife's uh, um, commitment to the Department of Justice. So we came back to, you know, it was Thanksgiving. Uh, we came back and I, I stopped by Ron's office and said, Ron, I think I'm coming back. And he goes, can you start in two weeks? And of course the answer is yes. Yes, so, of course. Yeah, yeah, I'll take the job. Yeah, so I, I started back in two weeks and that's how we came back uh, and I continued working with Ron. So that. what was the total uh, break? Four years. Four years. Man, I, I didn't realize it was that. I remember it now, but yeah. uh, I had forgotten until you just brought it up. Yeah. And then ever since you've been at, you've been at the county prosecutor's office. At the county prosecutor's office, correct. And uh, I, I really loved the position that Ron and then Gary Tyak actually, when he came in, gave me more responsibility uh, positions where I was helping train the office and training young prosecutors. Uh, I would go out. I've trained um, uh, troopers at the Ohio State uh, Highway Patrol. I've trained officers at CPD. I've gone down to the Ohio Police Officers uh, Training Academy, OPADA, and I've trained down there. Um, when I was working with the vehicular crimes, every police agency in Franklin County, there were five of us who did that. They had all our phone numbers, and they would call us and ask us for advice, and we go out to the scene. So I, I appreciate the amount of trust that everybody's given me when I was doing that sort of thing. Yeah, that's awesome. And then, so why quit? Why why, why Court of Appeals? Uh, the opportunity became open. Um, you got to remember, I'm, I, I guess I'm kind of following in my dad's footsteps. I was 29 years as a, an attorney. I was working all that time trying to gain experience, trying to um, you know help people of our community out. Uh, the position, Susan Brown uh, was retiring from the Court of Appeals. I looked around and saw who was interested in it. And while the people are, are very nice, they're young. Uh, they don't have the experience. Yeah. And and in looking around and asking people, hey, we need people with experience to step up, I realized I got to put my money where my mouth is. Yeah. I'm the guy with the experience. I know I've been in trials. I've done the work. I've, I've argued the issues. So I stepped up and said, hey, um, you know, Governor, I'm interested. I uh, had to go through that process, and then he appointed me. So you are currently sitting in the Court of Appeals here in Franklin County. That's correct. All right, so let's talk about what that is, just to break this down. So we have a trial court level where we're, that's what we've been talking about for the most part here. We, we, go, we go scrap it out in the trial court level. Juries uh, convict or acquit or find people not guilty, and uh, we plead guilty. That's all on the trial court level. And then if there's, then we have the Court of Appeals, which sort of sits one level higher. And I think there's always this notion on my side where people are like, I want to appeal. They think they're getting a new trial. Um, you're not. No. It's like, uh, I always say, it's like you just played a game of Monopoly and you think somebody cheated. So now you're going to go to mom and dad and they're going to tell you whether somebody cheated. And they may say, 
you cheated so much that you have to go play that game again to see who wins. Right. Or they're going to say, it was no big deal. You already had 15 hotels, and you were going to win anyway. So that's it. Well, again, it's it's a trying to follow the law. I mean, um, uh, when there's a trial um, and somebody feels like there was an issue that was done improperly, and it could be from letting evidence in or keeping evidence out, um, they didn't have the opportunity to uh, clearly uh, explain themselves. They needed the continuance, whatever it was. Um, they didn't like the decision. They think it was contrary to law. That's when you appeal it to the appellate court. And then the appellate court hears that specific issue. We don't have jurors. Uh, you have 15 minutes aside to argue the case. But what you've done is you've written a brief. Uh, there's a, a response to that brief and then a reply brief. And as a judge on the court of appeals, what I do is I read that brief. I read the cases that you've cited uh, in cases where there is a trial. I read the transcript. And I feel like I'm reading a book every three days. There's a lot of reading going into this, a lot of, but also I have the opportunity to sit back and listen. It's not like being a prosecutor where you have to jump every day to a different case. So I'm, I'm reviewing the issue. I'm looking at the law. I'm reviewing what the case law has been and, and uh, trying to decide the case on the rule of law. So let me let me go back and get some definitions. I remember thinking when I before law school, I'll tell you the movie. It was um, Singing in the Rain with uh, Robert Redford and um, who was the Singing in the Rain was uh, 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 no that was um, or not Singing in the Rain. Um, uh, what's the one? With Robert Redford's a lawyer. They get married. He's young. He's uh, not Singing in the Rain. Um, I'll think of it. Okay. But uh, he was he was a young lawyer working for a firm, and he had these briefs to work on. And I was thinking, what the hell's a brief? I remember asking my dad, who's a law professor, Dad, what's a brief? And he didn't give me a good example either. But you've used a term here. It's like right. you review briefs. What the hell's a brief? Uh, a brief is um, uh, a written document that the lawyer uh, says, hey, listen, these are the issues. This is what I think was done improperly. These are the assignments of error. That's what they call it. And so they list the assignments of error, and then they go into describing uh, what was done in the court, and then looking at the previous case law, all the precedent, uh, and saying this decision by the judge was made contrary to the law that exists currently. And they can either say you need to have the judge apply that, or they can say this law needs to be changed. We, we need to uh, look at this situation, and this law doesn't apply to it. But what they do is they lay out all of their arguments. Uh, they lay out all the case law that they think is appropriate. And then as a judge, I need to review that. I'll listen to oral arguments. They'll come to court and make their arguments there. But then based upon what they've said, both sides, and the law that I think is appropriate in this matter, we'll make a decision. And, and we just sort of write an essay, so to speak, like a, like a written argument that explains why we think we're right. Both Correct. sides do. Right. And up, up to 40 pages. <laughs> and the authority we cite is going to be up to 40 pages with like a ridiculous like 14 font now in, the, um, yeah. in, uh, in Franklin County. But the, the cases we cite are like uh, somebody who uh, – other courts who have decided similar issues were saying, look, here's what the law is here. Here's how they've interpreted it, and um, you should follow this precedent or that precedent or whatever. And then you as judges, like it's interesting to me because you you said you actually read the briefs, which you know sometimes I question whether that <laughs> happens. Uh, but beyond that, uh, you read the transcripts. So here's what he's saying. like Let's say there's a felony trial that lasted two weeks. I order the transcript that is like the court reporter up front is typing it all up on her uh, or his, um, what do they call it, a steno machine. Correct. And I get a transcript. So everything that is said is there. And, you know, these are sometimes a couple thousand pages, sometimes just a hundred, couple hundred pages. Right. 
but it's a pain in the ass. Well, I've not had the 2000 page transcript yet, but I have had a 700 page transcript and, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, and for me, it's interesting because in my mind, as I'm reading it, I know the process. I, I can picture the the uh, what's going on in the courtroom. I hear uh, and I know most of the people that are arguing this, so I, I can see the faces as they're they're making the arguments. So for me, it's entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there is, you know, I, when I don't have to read a transcript in order to um, do an appeal and write the brief, right? It is a lot more fun, right? Because it's it is it's like reading a movie script right. on, on some levels. So what's the, like on the court, you're already there on the court of appeals. Uh, tell us about oral arguments because you mentioned that too. So you get 15 minutes. So how does that, uh, from your perspective, sitting on the bench, and I'm a lawyer, I've been in the court of appeals. I've argued more cases I can count. And 15 minutes goes by in about 10 seconds. And before you know it, you're done. Right. Well, um, now that I'm running for, uh, to keep my spot here, I've uh, been visiting some law firms and I have a, that question asked a lot. Is it worth going to make the oral argument? Yeah, here I, I am. I, I'm already, I'm, that's exactly where I'm going with this. I, I've, I've written my brief. I've said everything I thought I should say. Um, does it change your mind? And uh, so far, oral argument hasn't changed my mind, but it's made um, my uh, decision more uh, grounded. Uh, based upon some more arguments. What I would suggest people do, I, I, I don't know um, what the law firms say, but if you're going to do oral argument, argue my decision. You know, just say, you know, this is how, you know how we write decisions. Yeah. Uh, you know who's on the bench. You can pull up some decisions from these uh, judges and just go through and write my decision for me in your oral argument. Just don't repeat what you've said in your brief. Yeah, that's the, that's the trick. I always, you know, it's funny you say it because when I, uh, in law school, I had the experience of working for Meeks and Chemansky and right. I wrote every single brief at that point. I mean, I was writing all their appellate work or all their appellate briefs and then we'd get to an exam and a lot of times the professors would say, you represent so-and-so, uh, how's the court of appeals going to decide it? So I just, I had read so many appellate decisions. I'd written so many. I just started to write the decision. Right. And, uh, it, it's like Im immediately I did well. I mean, the, the professors love that. And uh, I started writing my briefs that way. Like I, I, I just implicitly write the brief as if, as if I won. Here are the facts. Here's the law. Here's how you should write your decision. Yeah. But I've never, I don't know if I've ever actually stood up and thought, all right, if I'm going to read this, if I'm going to give an oral rendition of how this appellate decision should work, what would I say? I'm, I'll do that next time. I've got a couple coming up. Okay. All right. Good. Interesting. So you get 15 minutes to argue, and then then what happens? How does it how does it get to, how does the case get decided? Well, I guess I need to describe what the uh, Court of Appeals is a little more. We have eight judges that are on our Court okay, of yeah, Appeals yeah. here in, in Franklin County, and we're the 10th district. So there are 12 districts all throughout Ohio. The 10th district Court of Appeals handles only Franklin County. So there are eight judges up there. We sit on a three judge panel. So we rotate everybody. I uh, you know you don't stay with the same judges all the time. Um, and when you do oral argument, it's one of those three judges that's going to write the decision. And that's a random pick, which that's three judges. Pick. Correct. And, and I don't think that uh, the people arguing know who's going to be the author. We kind of try to keep that secret so you're not looking at just one person. You're arguing everybody. Do you know in advance who it's going to be? Yes. Okay, I've never known. Yes. So we'll know in advance who it is. Um, but then after the oral argument, we go and we conference. And all three judges start talking about the case, uh, what their opinions of it are, uh, how we should go. And we've come to a, uh, a general idea of how we're going to decide the case. Um, the person who's the author then writes the case, and then it has to get circulated to the other two judges. So after you write the decision, uh, you send it to the next senior judge. They review it. If they agree with you, 
Uh, they can concur. They can concur with a, a separate opinion. They can dissent uh, and, and write something. Um, and then it goes to the third judge. And if the third judge is also dissenting, the opinion flips. There you and go. then the other two judges, uh, the senior judge, will write that uh, opinion that will then become the majority opinion. And then uh, the authoring judge will become the dissent if they did something uh, different than what the t- other two judges think. All right. I'm just going to clear one thing up, and then we'll, uh, I'm going I'm to ask you some questions about the election. Uh, right. So it, when you said Frank County only sits in Frank County, there's this notion that we have um, – this go, again, this goes way back to common law, where, where courts would sort of ride itinerary. They would they would travel around the land, and and the the, the appeals courts would come and fix what the local people screwed up. And uh, Franklin County has got so many people in the county that it just that's the only county it serves. So the tenth district is only Franklin County. Yes, but okay, give me the but. All right, um, it's the state capital. Oh, okay. And because it's the state capital, we deal. The tenth district is the only district that deals with state agencies as well. I never thought about that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm hearing cases from the Industrial Commission, from the Court of Claims, from the Ohio Department of Liquor, from Ohio Department of Natural Resources, the prison systems. Uh, there are some cases out there pending now where uh, students, because of COVID, had to go online and take cases, uh, take classes, excuse me, rather than uh, be in class. Right. And they wanted to be in class and they're getting something different from the university. So a number of students are suing the public universities around. And that's landed in Franklin County. Court of and it's all in Franklin County. So Toledo, Miami, Ohio, um, Kent State, they're all coming here to the 10th district for us to hear it. Gotcha. All right. Now I'm going to talk to, I'm going to talk election here because I've always had a pet peeve that, that our court of appeals judges have to run, uh, you know, and shut me up if this is a topic we shouldn't cover, but had to run next to a, a political party. Because to me, a judge is a judge is a judge is a judge. We have good ones, we have bad ones. We have judges who are great on one put in one political party who I have adored, even though it's not my party. And there are judges on the in my party that I thought this is the worst damn judge I've ever been in front of. And you know, the qualities are usually personality, uh, no patience. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hate any judge that treats lawyers badly just to do it, or talks down at us, or tries. I don't I don't, I don't take it anymore. <laughs> but when I was young, it used to terrify me a little bit. Um, and, you know, it, it, your legal mind has nothing to do with your political party. Um, at least I don't think so now. And, and there was one seminal case, I think, that sort of maybe changed all this, and it's called Roe v. Wade, where all of a sudden, how you felt about that dictated whether or not you were qualified to be a judge or not, which is nonsense. Uh, you know, it's like a, the, like how how you interpret the law, I feel, should be removed from political issues. And I, I agree with that because I'm a judge. Right. I've got to be neutral. Uh, even uh, when I'm a judge, I can't talk about how I feel about certain issues like Roe v. Wade or uh, the Reagan Tokes Act, which is a big one in uh, the criminal courts right now. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't express an opinion about that because I might hear a case concerning that. And I don't know how that case is going to come to me. I don't know what the issues are going to be. I don't know uh, the legal ramifications. Right. I, I have to stay neutral on this. Yep. Um, this is the first time uh, in Ohio history that the Supreme Court justices and the Court of Appeals judges, and I'm one of them, will have that party designation next to our name. And yours? Mine, I'm a Republican. Okay. So now now that's a stigma or it's a benefit or whatever. It, it's, a, it's a thing. It's a thing. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm proud to be a Republican. Uh, I think I'm a moderate Republican, um, but I'm a judge. My job is a judge. And so I'm going to be neutral on all the cases that come before me, and I'm going to have to apply the rule of law. I don't have an agenda. 
I'm not trying to create an issue or create an outcome. I've got to look at the U.S. Constitution, the Ohio Constitution, and precedent. And that's what I'm going to decide my cases on. And you're doing that with 30 years of experience. Correct. Correct. As, a, as a practicing attorney. And I, and I can't... I, I can't emphasize how important that is for my as a as a as a lawyer practicing in front of judges as you were. It's like it makes all the difference. Well, and, thank you. I, I think it does too because uh, experience matters. Uh, when you think of a judge, you think of a person who's been around the block a bit, uh, who who knows uh, what the, what the law is, how the issues come up. And now I'm an appellate court judge. I'm a judge who reviews those judges' decisions. Yeah. Right. So if those judges are the experienced ones, what do I have to be? I have to be experienced as well and, and even more experienced at times. So here I am, 30 years of attorney. Yeah. And you can't, you, my, as another good friend of mine once said, you, you can never fake experience. Like you can lie about it on your resume right. and, and you can say whatever you want to say, but you can't fake it. You know, it always plays itself out. And if you don't have the experience, then it's really simple. You don't have the experience. You don't know. Right. You don't know what it's like when, like you said, when you're putting yourself, it's interesting. You actually said it just dawned on me what you said and how sort of pointed it was is that you you know you can picture yourself in the courtroom making the arguments that the lawyers are making. Like you know the cast of characters, and even if you don't, you can put yourself there because you've been there, right? And and you know what's sort of motivating the 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 arguments and the issues and how they got to the place they've been because you've been there, and really on both sides. I mean, not both sides, but civil litigation plus criminal now, right? And I have that experience as well, so. Uh, I, you know, I, I appreciate the, the, the fact that people will consider that as something important because judges matter. We affect your lives uh, on a daily basis, whether you know it or not. Um, and if you ever get into a situation where you have to appear in court, you want somebody there that's got the experience. That's got the experience. And, and, and look, is it my, my qualities of good judge, and I'm going to ask you yours, um, I just, I, I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm getting an unfair shake. And there's so many, this probably, uh, it happens in courts of appeals. It happens in trial courts where I can, I can sense the eye rolling animosity because I'm on the defense side. I can just, I can feel it. It's, it's palpable. Uh, I hate judges who don't understand my job and what I have to do for a living. And, you know, I, I, in, in, you know, kudos to the court of appeals. I've got a case right now. It got slated in for an oral argument. Somehow I missed it. I'm on vacation that week. And I called down and I'm like, look, I missed this. I'm on vacation. And on the defense side, believe it or not, judges, prosecutors, everybody, there's like this standard notion that you don't get vacations. Right. right. And it's, it's so insane to me. Or like, why can't, like, you're going to start a trial next week. Well, I've got one this week. No, you're going to start next week anyway. It's like, damn it, I got to run a freaking business here. I can't be in trial for back to back for three weeks in a row. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And um, so many judges who lack experience doing sort of a global, uh, in, the, in the world, lack world experience, they don't get that. They've been institutionalized or they came from a big firm where they didn't have to worry about it or they didn't know. So I hate those kind of judges. I hate, I hate getting homered. I hate, uh, <laughs> uh, and I hate it when uh, I get disingenuous legal arguments that are designed to orchestrate an outcome. And I understand when I'm doing that, it's my job to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to make arguments that I can't win and I know I can't win, but I have to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I try to do it, it with as much I, I, I try to at least say when I'm doing it, look, this is what the law is. I don't like it. Right. And it should change. Right. Um, but I, I got a decision recently out of a court of appeals and it was just damn wrong. I mean, it's it just wrong. You know, it's like, Oh, this is, re- this is redundant. No prejudice done. And, uh, it was wrong. And, uh, I hate that. So those are the, 
and that's true across the board. That's trial court level. That's a court appeals level, Supreme right. Court level, anywhere you look. That I, I can't stand it. I just want to be treated with respect. I would like to have at least the same handshake that everybody else has, and I want a fair interpretation of the law. All right. So now you, All like right. you're, you're, and you are a judge. So you have some, you have some perspective. The, the biggest thing for me is giving the uh, parties an opportunity to be heard. And, and when I, my first case I've ever heard on the court of appeals was a pro se appellant. And I didn't think we had pro se appellant. Pro se means that the person was representing themselves. They didn't have an attorney representing them. Uh, and they came in and wanted to speak and they had the same 15 minutes that any attorney would have and we give them the opportunity to be heard. I think it's important that people get to make their arguments. We may not agree with their arguments, but they at least have the opportunity to fully flesh out their arguments and, and, and make their presentation to us. So I think that's really important. The other thing I think the uh, uh, people should know is that we're gonna follow the law. And I know you may not like the law, but it's not our job to change it. It's not our job to create it, that's the legislature. Um, if something needs to be changed, you go to the legislature and have them rewrite the law or write something new. There are issues on the uh, ballot this uh, coming Tuesday uh, for the voters to, to consider. I don't change that law. I follow it. So I'm going to follow the rule of law, and it's important for you to know that. So when you're coming in front of me and you have an argument that's a legal argument, I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to apply it. Awesome. And that's, it's, it's, we said essentially the same thing in different ways, right? We did. Yeah. And, and so back to this notion, we got election Tuesday and, you know, I, frankly, from my perspective, uh, I've always been, I guess, a, a Republican for lack of a better way to put it, but it, my own version of it, because um, there's times I haven't agreed with what re, the Republican Party is saying. But I will say this, I've never cared what a judge is. I've never cared. And uh, if, if you had uh, a D next to your name coming into this interview, I would treat it the same. Right. And uh, if it, if you were the candidate with the experience that you came, I would support you anyway. It wouldn't make any difference to me. Um, and uh, I urge everybody to think the same thing. I, I had, There was somebody I was uh, very close with, and she's a very dear friend, and she's a Democrat, true and true. In fact, maybe very far out uh, away from me. And, you know, we were still very good friends, which maybe is a lesson people should listen to these days. But right. Uh, right. she always said, I'm never going to vote for a Republican judge, even if they may be the best judge, because someday they may advance to something uh, where they can change policy or something. And I was just like, I was floored. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is how bad judges get elected. Right. This is how bad. This is why. And so often the most the harshest judges doing what I do are in the, on the Democrat side. And people are like, well, no, they're the ones that are supposed to be liberal towards criminal defendants. That's not always the case. And it's the opposite too sometimes. But the point is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And it shouldn't matter uh, whether you're a Republican or Democrat for a judge's position. What you need to look at, I believe, is their legal experience, the way they've handled themselves in court, the way they treat people, if they're willing to listen or if they're just going to shut people up right away. Yep. Um, how are they going to be a judge when you appear in front of them? And in, in electing inexperienced people to the court of appeals, here's what you get. You get all too often, and this is irrespective of political party, you get judges who don't want to hear it because they know it all. And whenever I hear that, they know nothing. They don't know what they're doing and they fake it. And uh, they get mad when you challenge them on it. And on the other side, it doesn't mean that if you if you don't have complete experience, you, you're, you can't somehow figure out to be it. You can. And there's a few judges every now and then that'll, that'll call us back, the part us being like you and I, if mm -hmm. you're the prosecutor and defense, say, look, this is the first time I've dealt with this. What do you guys think? Instead of just cramming down some dumb decision. Right, right. Um, I tell you, when I first went to the Court of Appeals, I was, uh, they are so professional up there. All the judges up there, when I got appointed, came and talked to me, sat down with me, and they said, listen, Keith, uh, 
you, I, I know most of them because I've been around for a while. Uh, and they said, listen, you got questions, you come to me, you talk to me, throw political party out the window. We want to do the right because thing. Because you got both up there. We got both up there. Yeah. And, and they actually said that. We want to get the right decision. Our goal is to try to make it right, to get it right. Um, and I, I appreciate them doing that because that's a good judge, yeah. right? You want to follow the rule of law. And, you know, you would say, somebody might ask me, how can you possibly support a guy who was a prosecutor for all those years? Isn't he, isn't he on the other side? No. You know, that's not how it works. And in fact, I've told a couple stories here, which would reflect quite the opposite. And so have you, you know, and that's, uh, I respect that. I don't care that you're, you're doing your job on the other side. It's, it's understanding what the bigger picture is and what the law is. And that's why to me, look, you happen to have an R next to your name and I'm a Republican. I'm admitted. I'm I'm actually, I try to tell my, my own version of conservative, but it's, um, and and that's a whole, it's like people are like, you're conservative (laughs) and you represent people charged with crimes. Yes. I love the constitution. Uh, and you know, it, it, it doesn't matter to me that you've been on the other side and it's coincidental only your party is only coincidental to me. It doesn't make any difference. I mean, I've had great appellate experiences with Democrat judges, awesome ones. I just happen to know your experience and I know, I know you and, and maybe the best thing I would ever suggest to anyone who is tr- struggling with a judge, what, who to vote for, uh, at any level, ask somebody like me, what I think about that judge. Uh, particularly if I, if I know who it is, you know, I mean, if, if they've been on the bench and you say, should I, should I reelect this judge? Ask me, I'll tell you the honest assessment. I might, I, I might, uh, sand the edges a little bit if, if, yeah. <laughs> instead of being mean, but, uh, you know, I, I've always honestly said this, th- this individual who's never been a judge would be a great judge or this individual who's already a judge. I can't stand. And, uh, I'm voting against this person. And it's, it's irrespective of political uh, affiliation. So well, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I appreciate you having me on here, uh, giving uh, an opportunity to have people know about me. Uh, I'm a little embarrassed uh, by doing this, but I'm very honored uh, for you to have me. And, and to tell you the truth, I'm, I was humbled when I was uh, appointed the judge. Yeah. Uh, the responsibility that uh, was put out there for me to, to do, uh, I'm, I'm trying. Yeah, that's well, a, that's in, in, in speaking from my side of the bench, uh, that's what you want, folks. That's what you want. If if a judge tells you they know everything, they don't because nobody knows every damn thing. As uh, as uh, that's a Beverly Hills Cop quote. Right. You don't know every damn thing. <laughs> um, but uh, all right. So look, I, to wrap it up, I'm voting for Keith Keith McGrath. It's on Tuesday. Uh, for those of you who haven't figured that out yet, maybe the biggest election of our time on Tuesday. So go go vote and uh, uh, and now you know now you know how to pick a judge and and hopefully the Keith they got a whoever's listening has a chance to get to know you. We're going to get this out uh, tonight. Thank and, you. And uh, we'll try to get uh, as many people to uh, to hear it as we can. And and look, I, I'm not limited to only talking to, to people on one side of the political aisle, folks. If you want to come in and you run for office, you want me to – you want to talk to me about what you do and whatever it is, I'll do it. I could care less. I, I like uh, – uh, I, I like to get to the bottom of it from a common sense school approach. So, Steve, I appreciate you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. So, all right, to wrap it up, this is a uh, Lawyer Talk is back, and there, there's more stuff to come. As those uh, who have been listening know, I do a Lawyer Talk Q&A series where I take questions. I've been on the Blitz for, you know, I don't know, 12 years, but that, that gig sort of ended for various reasons. But uh, trust me, it's not over until it's over. There's more to come there. Uh, and I'm going rogue. I haven't announced what the hell rogue means, but I'm going rogue. And uh, it'll start to hit in the spring and summer next year where uh, we're lawyer talk rogue edition and the breakdowns are coming. And then, you know, for those who have followed sort of the bigger picture stuff, we've got the uh, the roundtable discussions that's now shifted over. Keith, we have this new, new uh, podcast called Common Sense Ohio. Uh, it's actually dropping website, um, uh, social media, press announcement, 
the whole and episodes are already out there, and it's really, really solid. It is uh, uh, the idea is to take this commonsensical approach at political issues. That sounds great. Um, and you can say I'm conservative, but I don't accept that moniker unless you ask me what that means to me. Um, so if you're if you say, well, he's conservative, I don't, I don't, I don't, well, shame on you for not listening because uh, you may be surprised. So Common Sense Ohio is the idea that uh, common sense conservatism, where we're going to break down issues, things that make sense, we're going to measure them against history, philosophy, uh, logic, uh, and common sense. So uh, this has been Lawyer Talk Off the Record, on the air with Keith McGrath, uh, running for Court of Appeals Judge here, Court of Appeals Judge here in the 10th District, at least until now.